Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. So Christ actually revolutionised the way the world thought about gender, marriage and sex. There is much conversation both in the public arena and in private on the subject of morality and sexual standards. Where do we get our standards from? What Jesus Christ taught about marriage and sex revolutionised Greco-Roman thinking and significantly influenced the standards of sexual morality adopted by modern society. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues a series of messages looking directly at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, where we discover exactly what those standards were. Let's join him now for part five of the Corinthian series, Being an Unleavened Church. So, all right, well, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you haven't got your Bible, turn on your iPad and go to whatever Bible app you use and tell Siri, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, however you do that. Well, I'm going to pray for this, what we're about to do now in, in looking at this, because this it could be one of the most important messages that we as a church have to understand in order to navigate some of the waters that we are going to have to navigate over the coming year or two. So let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would give us ears to hear, and I pray, Lord, open our hearts. May it be your word that is handled with care and with truth. May we divide it correctly, and may we apply it appropriately. And I pray for this in the name of Jesus, Amen. All right, so we are going through an exposition through Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. We have in our Bible two of the letters that Paul wrote, and quite probably Paul wrote at least four. We know definitely four, but quite probably and possibly he wrote five epistles to the Corinthians, and he refers to all, well, he refers to four at least. And then there's an allusion to, to the fifth one in 2 Corinthians. So this should straight away tell you that the Corinthian church was having problems. There were, there were some pretty big issues happening here in the church. In one sense, I hear people say, I wish we could just go back to the church of the book of Acts. Well, Corinth was in the book of Acts. Do you want to be like that? That was a, that was a basket case. They had so many things going on in that church that you, 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 if you were in Corinth, you wouldn't join the church because it was, it was problematic. Now, I'm saying that to say that Paul actually says there are some of you who get it and you are walking faithfully with God. So maybe you join that segment of it. But here we have an exposition. An exposition is where we're actually going going through it systematically. Now, I know in my absence, we jumped ahead with what pastors Donna and, and, and uh, Tony shared, but I'm now coming back to where I left off, and that's why we're looking at chapter 5. And so an exposition is just going to go through verse by verse, and by doing that, we're not picking and choosing our favourite topics. We're not going to leave out the bits that are hard. We're not going to leave out the bits that, what does that mean, or the bits that we don't like. We're going to deal with everything as we come across it. So I'm calling this being an unleavened church. And this will make sense as we go through the text, what I'm meaning by that. If you know anything about leaven, it was used predominantly uh, to... Uh, there was only one feast that it was used, and that was the Feast of Firstfruits. 
Apart from that, none of the offerings were allowed to have leaven in it because Paul will say in Corinthians in two places that leaven speaks metaphorically of corruption, moral corruption, which leads to sin, which could lead to you missing out on eternal life. So that's pretty serious. So how, do we want, how can we be an unleavened church in that sense? So that's the background to that title. Let me tell you about Corinth. Corinth, we've already seen, I hope, was a, a busy, big metropolis. It had a population of over one million people. As you, have you been to Corinth, Dr. John? You haven't. You sent me photos of the channel, <laughs> but you haven't been there. So there are some people in our church who have been to Corinth and, and they have told me about Mount Corinth, which is there. And um, at the top of Mount Corinth, which overlooked the city, there was the, the temple of Aphrodite, which means the, the, the goddess of love. And the temple of Aphrodite was a place that attracted many, many tourists and these tourists would come and they would, they would spend money in Corinth and they would spend money at the temple and they would make their offerings and there would be much economic value to the temple of Aphrodite. And so the, the, there were a temple prostitutes there that the visiting males would come and frequent. And this is where you need to understand this background because two things, I've told you that men would come to Corinth to frequent the temple of Aphrodite and participate in, in essentially what was uh, temple prostitutes. When a man did that, in the Greco-Roman world, even if he was married, that was not considered adultery. Now this is shocking. It, I hope it's shocking to our ears. It should sound shocking. Only a woman could be considered guilty of adultery. Now, in John chapter 8, there's that, in, from verse 1 down to about verse 8 or so, verse 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there, there's the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And I've heard a lot of people say, and where's the man? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, it was the woman who was guilty, not the man. So when you get that, the fact that it shocks us, I hope it shocks us, that we think that's not right, tells you how much of an influence Christianity has had on the world's thinking since Christ came. So Christ actually revolutionised the way the world thought about gender, marriage and sex. Now I've heard people who have probably never read the Bible talk like they know what the Bible's all about. And they make these outrageous claims about the Bible and say stupid things like this. Jesus never spoke about gender, marriage or sex and especially never spoke about homosexuality. So how do you Christians know that he condemns it? Well, well sorry, excuse me while I just get a little bit worked up about this. Because I want to show you some of, the, some of the statements by Christ and you tell me what he's talking about. So we're going into, if you've got your finger in 1 Corinthians 5 or a bookmark there in your iPhone, we're going also to Matthew chapter 15 verses 19 and 20. You may want to highlight it. If you've got a highlighter, it would probably do you well to highlight it in yellow because it'll probably be in red letter. And a red letter Bible uh, sort of gets blended out if you use orange. Trust me, <clears throat> I know. 
For out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I want you to notice that list because Paul's going to have a list in a moment and I want us to, to notice this. Now notice what Jesus says here. These are what defile a person. A defiled person could not come into the temple or the tabernacle precinct. They, they couldn't do it. They were, they were to be separated from the community of God's people. This has eternal consequences. And Paul's going to say that in a moment. This is not some trivial thing. But notice this. It's evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Here's the question. Are we in any doubt what murder is? The unjustified killing of an innocent life. That's murder. Different to killing, by the way, in war. So just remember that the, the sixth command of the Ten Commandments does not say do not kill. It says do not murder. The next one, adultery, hopefully we understand that Jesus is actually referring back to the law in Leviticus 18, 19, which said that men and women were guilty of adultery. First thing to notice. The next thing, he's also referring to Leviticus 18 and 19. And let me just put a footnote on this. I've heard people say, yes, but that's Old Testament. That's Leviticus. And I'm going to say immediately, still in my footnote, Jesus inspired that. It's his word. He spoke that word to Moses to write into their law. And it lists six categories of sexual conduct that the Bible calls sexual immorality. Did you notice the response of the Jewish audience listening to him at this point? If you read on in your Bible, you'll see none of them said, excuse me, what, what do you mean? None of them said that. Why didn't they say that? Because they all knew what he meant. It was clear. They knew it. They knew the law. They knew what it was. So we have the six categories, including things like bestiality, rape. We have things like when you're married, having sex outside of marriage. We have things like, and that's called adultery. We have things like sex without marriage. That's called fornication. The Greek word porneia, where we get the word pornography from. We also have... A man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. Homosexuality. And it's all there. And Jesus says, doing those things starts in the heart. And if it starts in the heart and you entertain that, you are going to be defiled. But to eat with unwashed hands, Jesus said, does not defile anyone. So this is very, very clear what Jesus considers the boundaries for sexual activity. Here's the good news. If you've broken those boundaries, you can find forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. And this is surely great news. Now, Matthew chapter 19, verses 4, 5 and 6. So that's what Jesus said about sexuality. Listen to what he says here in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4, 5 and 6. He answered... 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, notice Christ's statement about gender, male and female. The Greek, sorry, the Hebrew words are ish and isha, male and female, Adam and isha, female. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Not three, not for a couple of months, but for life. Jesus goes on in verse 6 and says this, They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let not man separate. And that's the phrase that I would use in a wedding. And we do. That's part of Christian tradition for a wedding. Now this is important background to what we're about to have a look at in 1 Corinthians 5 because Paul is going to build on the very two passages of scripture that we've seen coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So after Paul left Corinth, false teachers came in and distorted the message of grace. They distorted it. So let's have a look at the background to 1 Corinthians 5. In verse 1, it reads this, and now let's, let's have a look at our text. It is actually re reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, we've already defined that out of the mouth of Jesus. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, which is specifically forbidden in the sexual immorality standards of Leviticus 18 and 19. Okay, here's what I want to say about why this has to be dealt with. We are living in a culture, and you would know it probably as well as anyone, that is pushing back on the Christian, that is the biblical view of marriage, gender and sexuality. We get called names, which is a clue. Because when the other side, the people who are, who are attacking us, haven't got any arguments to support their case, they, re, they resort to violence, even if it is verbal violence. And that tells you their case is very weak. We notice this as I was reading one commentator, as I prepare for a, another sermon series in, in the Gospel of John, I'm, I'm looking at John now and, and seeing, and this commentator points out, as the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders interacted with Jesus in the temple in the week leading up to his glorious entrance into Jerusalem, he confounded them. And then there's about three occasions where it says, and they picked up rocks to stone him. They couldn't, they couldn't counter him. They couldn't refute what he was saying, the way he presented God's word. They even sent soldiers to arrest him. The soldiers began to hear him and thought, this is, this is not a man. What this guy is saying causes the, the ground to shake. This is, this is the voice of God. And they walked back to the temple and said, we couldn't arrest him. They wanted to do him violence because they couldn't refute what he was saying. So I think there's a lot of dare I say it, churches and pastors who are actually very scared to talk about this 
They're very, very reluctant to talk about this because people might get offended and leave because they might have a family member or a friend who is living that kind of lifestyle and, and it can't be evil. It just can't be evil because they're a really nice person. Which I don't know what's gone wrong with the thinking of how you understand what's right and wrong when you think it's about being nice. So, there was a member of the Corinthian church that was in an illicit relationship with his stepmother, his father's wife. There's a high possibility that his father had died and she was a widow, but that doesn't matter. It was wrong. Now, this is, this is interesting because we know Paul is responding to a letter that they wrote to him and was delivered by the servants of Chloe. And it says that in the opening chapter. The people who came from Chloe's household have probably told Paul, oh, Paul, there's something else you need to know. <laughs> and they told him this. That's why he says it's actually reported the first few words of chapter 5. They didn't write to him about this. They, sounds like they did not want him to know. Now, Paul has to address this because what the Corinthians were doing and allowing to happen had brought the entire church into disrepute among the broader Corinthian community. Not even the pagans would, would, would tolerate this. And here Paul says... You have brought the entire name of Christ and his church into disrepute because of your conduct. So he's pretty strong in his response because this actually matters. This actually matters. Verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So when the Corinthians had written to Paul, as I mentioned, they, with all their questions that they had, they didn't raise this issue. And even that should tell us they were ashamed. They didn't want Paul to know. But Paul says in verse 3, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced <gasps> judgment. That's like the one sin. You can't do now, right? Don't judge me, cries the world. You're judging me. And what would Paul say to that? Maybe you didn't just hear what I said. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So let me tell you something unfortunately shocking about what it means to be a church, what it means to have leadership that cares about God's word that cares about what Christ thinks about his church, who cares about upholding God's word in a godless, shall we say, Babylonian culture. When is it necessary to judge another person? Well, let me introduce you to some words, the word judgmentalism. We're not talking about judgmentalism. It's a clue. Whenever a word ends with ism, it's an ideology that's probably not pretty. So judgmentalism, this is what it does. It condemns and looks down upon another person as being beyond redemption. It's kind of taking the place of God to condemn 
people. Here's another type of judgment. And by the way, um, well, well, there's three types of judgment here. This is the second one now. I'm calling it accountable judgment. Accountable judgment considers another person's actions or attitudes as needing correction. As needing correction. And here's the third type of judgment. Eternal judgment. And we will see that this is actually going to be referred to by Paul in verse 13. Eternal judgment is an exclusively divine prerogative. In other words, this is God's call. And it's only God's call. God does this. So when the Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged, it's kind of talking about judgment number one, being judgmental. It's not saying you can't look at someone's life and go, that's not right. Someone should challenge them because they are claiming to be a Christian but not living like a Christian, like openly, deliberately, intentionally not living like a Christian and actually saying that what they are doing is right and there's nothing wrong with it. Paul says this, So eternal judgment is an exclusively divine prerogative where a person's acceptance it involves a person's acceptance or rejection of Christ. So Paul says this in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Oh my goodness. That sounds serious. Because it is. Because it is. And we live in a culture that thinks sex is some trivial thing and the Bible says, no way. It is a sacred thing. It has at least four purposes. And one of them, probably where we should start, is that the sexual union between a man and his wife is a picture of God's love for his people and the type of union every believer should have with God. How intimate is the sex between a man and his wife? Answer, very intimate. It's ultimate transparency. It involves ultimate commitment. And those are things that involve our relationship with God. And God has given sex as a gift because he wants the world to understand, and this is what I want with you, not sex, but intimacy and closeness and devotion. And the Bible actually says this in, in Ephesians chapter 5. So Paul is saying, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord and the power of the Lord, where is he getting this from? Well, the name of the Lord is based on what Jesus has already said. We've seen a couple of things that Jesus has said that gives us the guide stick for determining what's right and wrong. In other words, being able to judge accountably. In other words, our, our mission here is to restore, not to condemn, to restore. And how do we know that? Because Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. And I've heard people misquote this. And I'm about to say that I've heard people say this at a prayer meeting. And I'm, I'm going to tell you the context is not a prayer meeting. Where, where people have said, oh, it's great. You know, even in a church, we're, we've, over uh, our break, we were in some small churches because we believe in church. We don't go to church just because we're, 
we're a pastor and his family. We go to church because we love Jesus. And I've heard people say this, well, you know, there may not be many of us here, but wherever two or three are gathered, the Lord is there. What are you saying? The Lord isn't with me or you individually ever, unless you're with two or three. Can I have two or three others? I just need the presence of... Can you see how that doesn't make sense? So let me, let me have a look at this passage of Scripture, see if you can pick up the flow of thought. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Does that sound like accountability? The answer is yes, it does. Next verse. But if he does not take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? So I, I don't think there's anything ambiguous about what Jesus is saying. Next verse. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And how were Gentiles and tax collectors treated? They were not accepted at all. Gentiles because they didn't worship the God of Israel and tax collectors because they were betraying Israel. In other words, they are not a part of your, your fellowship. Therefore, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I've heard people misquote this as if this is some spiritual warfare thing. But the Jews had binding laws and loosing laws. Whatever, and, and the Greek tense is interesting, whatever you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. In other words, you bind what I have bound. You loose what I have loosed. In other words, binding laws, you can't do this. Loosing laws, you should do this. Laws of sin of commission you commit a sin binding laws regarding commission this is what you should do and you don't loosing laws you should do this you shouldn't do this because i've decreed them you're upholding my word and i say to you if two or three get this if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I hope you're seeing the context here. This is church accountability of someone who is refusing to repent. Look at the next verse. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see what Jesus is saying? This is important. You don't let someone who's sleeping around with their girlfriend or their boyfriend and then come into church and being a part of the worship team as if it's all okay, because it is not. Sex is not to be trifled with. It is a sacred thing. It's sacred. And that's why God has given the gift of marriage for it to be protected and preserved and cultivated and nurtured. So church discipline is all about the welfare, not just of the individual, but of the whole church. And Paul's going to use the word leaven as if, if you don't deal with this, that leaven is going to get in and it's going, to, it's going to destroy the church. Don't let it happen. 
And he picks up on this idea of leaven from the Passover feast. The bread that had to be cooked on the night they left Egypt, they didn't have time for it to rise. It had to be baked and they couldn't wait for it to have leaven in it so that it rot. It, it, rot. it, had to, it was like a flat, almost crisp pizza bread. Someone described it as a crisp pancake. That's what it would have been like, unleavened bread. And this is what Paul says in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. That's why this is how we can be an unleavened church. Not being judgmental, but taking someone aside and saying, hey, I, I noticed that you're, you're talking about things that Christians shouldn't talk about. You're using language and humour that is inappropriate for a believer and it actually dishonours Christ. And I would say that to someone who is speaking of, about women in, a, in an unbecoming way. I would say that. Don't talk about women like that. And if someone was talking about the partying that they're doing, the getting drunk and not remembering, because in the list of things comes up this word drunkenness as well, in the same list of sexual immorality and so on. These are things that need to be dealt with in the church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And what does that sound like? It sounds like this. Lord, have your way in my life. Lord, if I'm doing anything that displeases you, correct me. Bring people into my life who can help me. Bring people into my life who can point out to you the things that I'm doing that are breaking your heart because sin is not just breaking your law, it's breaking your heart. Help me to be someone who doesn't break your heart. That's what sincerity and truth sounds like. It turns out that Paul had actually already addressed some of these issues to the Corinthians in his previous letter because we read later on, in my previous letter, he says... So we read in verses 9 and 10, I wrote to you in my letter. Oh, hello. What does that make 1 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's already talked about this stuff. No wonder they didn't want to raise it. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Why? Or the greedy or swindlers. <laughs> Can you see Paul's list now? Can you see how it's different to the list that Christ just gave in Matthew chapter 15? Swindlers or idolaters? Since then you would need to go out of the world. Imagine if we said every Monday morning now as Christians, as part of this church, we're going to spend our days not coming into contact with one sinner. <laughs> oh, yeah. You see what Paul's saying here? I'm not saying, that's what he's saying. I'm not saying that. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But this is what he is saying. But now, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality, notice his list, sexual immorality or greed. Is there anyone here who would like to confess their greed right now? Oh, that's interesting. 
or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler? What's he got against... Swindlers are nice people. What's he got against swindlers? This is the second time he's picked on them in two verses. Not even to eat with such a one. Hmm. It seems like the elders of the Corinthian church, whom curiously are never named except for Crispus and Stephanus, they should have dealt with this. And Paul's actually going to say this. That the church leaders, that's the eldership. So Stephen and Ali, I hope you're listening. It's your duty to hold me to account so that I'm not a swindler, a drunkard, a, an idolater or sexually immoral. Church leaders, eldership have a duty to hold believers to account, especially members, people who say, I want to serve in this church. And then even more especially, leaders. That's our job. To shepherd the sheep, to care so much that we're prepared to tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, listen, you're neglecting your wife. You need to do something about that. Or your greed, I mean, you've come out here for prayer because you've racked up $45,000 of debt on your credit card. And don't laugh, it happens. You know, that could have been avoided if you had employed this principle of pay your debts when they're due instead of living by greed. Now, if that's not what greed is looking like, then someone might want to help me out here because we are seeing that in today's world. And every time um, big retailers say, no interest payments for 54 years, <laughs> or whatever they say, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Verse 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Wowzers. So we don't want to be a judgmental church, but we do want to be a church that loves by holding people to account, by challenging people, by inviting people to be teachable, not obstinate. We don't want the response, don't tell me what to do. I remember hearing a pastor say that he spoke to the worship leader and he said, you know, you're doing a song that's theologically not quite accurate according to the Bible. I don't want you to do that song anymore. And the worship leader's response was this. Don't you tell me what songs to sing and I won't tell you what to preach. For those that don't know, that was not our current worship leader, Tom. <laughs> that, that grave plot up there, that was, it was, it was... <laughs> this pastor, whose name is Ian, Ian Woods, he said, unfortunately, that was our last Sunday with that worship leader <laughs> because I'm not going to tolerate that attitude. Now, it's not about, you know, the pastor's always right. In fact, Tom will tell you, 
I'm probably more the other way. I'll let Tom have free reign, except when it does come to the theological standards of songs. And he knows that. Because I don't want to sing stupid stuff. <laughs> what was that? Amen. Hallelujah. And here's the, the closing verse. Who does the judging for people's eternal destiny? Paul says, God judges those outside. Now notice that God judges those outside. I've heard people say stupid things like this. You can't expect the world to live like Christians. Well, God does. You can't expect the world to obey God. Well, God does. In fact, he's going to judge those outside the church. Therefore, he says, but within the church, purge the evil person from among you. So, do you think this, if we, if we embrace this as a church, do you think this might cause someone to be a little bit hesitant to come and join our church? It might. But you know there's a word or a phrase for that? The fear of the Lord. And don't we read that in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 6 about the fear of the Lord in the early church? And if that's what you mean by, I just wish we could get back to the days of the early church, then I'm all with you. I, I totally agree. If that's, what we're to, if that's what we're talking about. So what do we learn from what we've just looked at in this exposition of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Hopefully, we learn this, that gender and sexuality are sacred gifts from our Creator. Hopefully, we learn that. Not to be trifled with. Secondly, not every urge we have should be acted on. I mean, this young man, whoever he was, had an urge to have sex with his stepmother. He should have controlled himself and not done that. That's what he should have done. Christopher Yuan was a dentistry student. His father was a dentist. His father was also a PhD. And Christopher Yuan was one semester away from graduating as a doctor of dentistry. And he got involved in his university days with the wrong crew, the party scene, that led him into a lifestyle where he was introduced to homosexuality and drug-taking. And he realised that he could deal in drugs and make some pretty good money. So he began dealing, using, and got involved, embedded in the homosexual community. One day there was a knock at his door. And it was the police. Someone had dobbed him in. The university, even though he'd just finished his semester and completed his exams, they wouldn't graduate him. They refused to graduate him because of what he'd been doing. And he went and served, I think it was somewhere between 10, around about 10 years in prison for drug dealing. It was in prison that the chaplain came to him and said, is there anything I can do for you? And he said, absolutely not. My parents are Christians. They've shoved it down my throat all my life and I want nothing to do with it, so don't ever come back. And then something happened. His mother 
began to fast every day, well not every day, just about every day, weekly, regularly, for her son. And then she would ask anybody she could to pray for her son Christopher, Christopher Yuan, Y-U-A-N. And over the next five years as he was being prayed for, he says in his book, I think it's called Out of a Far Country, he says this, something was happening inside me and I couldn't explain it. But I, I had become very disillusioned with the life that I'd been living and I became very remorseful of what I'd done. And I can't explain how that happened. And he happened to see the chaplain and said, can I ask you a question? Is homosexuality wrong? And the chaplain said, no, no, that's old day stuff. He said, oh, okay, well, that's all right then. Can I have a Bible? And the chaplain said, sure. Got him a Bible. Christopher actually read it and saw that the chaplain was wrong. Got on his knees in his prison cell, cried out to God for help and became a Christian. He says, God did not take my attractions and desires away from me, but he showed me they were wrong and they should not be acted on. He got out of prison he went to Bible college, he went and earned his PhD in theology and he's now a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute. It's a great story. I encourage you to have a look at his story with his mother on YouTube. It's a great story. Number three, what do we learn? Elders are called to shepherd, which involves holding believers to account. That's what we, the elders of this church, have to do. Fourthly, just because we have rules in our church does not make us legalistic. Legalism is not having rules. In fact, rules are necessary for a church to be healthy. Would you please stand? Father, help us to be the kind of church that loves Christ in word, in deed, and in attitude. Help us not to be judgmental, looking down on people who perhaps were guilty and are guilty of the very things that Paul has listed. But Father, help us to be compassionate, knowing that we too, in one way or another, are guilty of the same things. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to embrace your word. And for those, Lord, battling with inner turmoil I pray that they would look to you the God who says come to me and I'll give you rest confess your sins one to another so that you can be forgiven that Lord they would find forgiveness and cleansing and peace with you I pray now Lord may we know the love of God the Father the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Corinthians Part 5 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. 
As we've heard tonight, the teachings of Jesus revolutionised the thinking of the Greco-Roman world around sexual morality and set the standard for behaviour within the church. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.